Father, we have been singing of Christ. We just read here that he's coming back. And, and Lord, we, we desire to be with Christ. And, and I ask now that as we consider your word, that you'll help us to, to meet him, to think on him. Lord, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes and open our ears. May your spirit convict hearts of your truth. And Father, we pray that you would accomplish now, during this time, what only you can. And that is the affecting of hearts through the life-giving power of your word. So please work now for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Theprepared.com is a website where you can read the following articles, among many others. Survival Clothing Beginner's Guide. How to Make, Store, and Eat Hardtack. Uh, apparently it lasts forever. Best Foods to Grow in a Survival Garden, which I'm assuming would taste better than hardtack. Beginner's Guide to Ham Radio. A Bug Out Bag List. Prepping for Beginners, an Emergency Preparedness Checklist. I suspect you've at least heard of the social movement of survivalists or preppers. These are individuals or groups who proactively prepare for emergencies, including natural disasters, as well as the disruption to social, political, or economic order. And the emphasis is on self-reliance, stockpiling of supplies, in gaining survival knowledge and skills. Perhaps you've seen the show Doomsday Prepper on National Geographic or have heard stories of those who've gone to great lengths and spent lots of money in hopes of being ready to survive Y2K, the destruction of the power grid, the Yellowstone supervolcano, financial collapse, or just the end of the world as we know it. Now, there is certainly an appropriate level of preparedness for things that we'll face in this world, which is wise. But this morning, we're going to consider the importance of being ready for something that is far more significant than anything you'll ever see discussed on a prepper website. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, perhaps you're still there from the scripture reading of chapter 24. Matthew 25, which we'll be looking at this morning, in the context, the chapter leading up to it, chapter 24 at the beginning, Jesus' disciples asked him privately, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, what sign would signal the coming, his coming, at the end of the age? Well, Jesus proceeds to speak to them, to speak to his disciples about the last days. And he makes it clear that the end would not come immediately, but only after a considerable amount of time and troubles, which he discusses in verses 4 through 31. And then in the verses Andrew just read, starting in verse 32, Jesus speaks of what his disciples can and cannot know. And on the basis of both, he gives his disciples some specific instructions. 
We know that Jesus often spoke in parables, which in its broadest sense is an expanded analogy. The ultimate aim of parables is to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, and to move to action. I've heard it said that parables are like a hand grenade that Jesus pulls the pen out of, sets it on the table, and waits to see what you're going to do with it. Well, in these two chapters, chapters 24 and 25, which are known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus tells six parables. The first is the parable of the fig tree, there in verse 32, which teaches that there are certain signs which indicate the season of his return, but not the exact time, not the day or the hour. We're not meant to know that. We don't. Only the Father does. Which is why every single prediction has been proven wrong. In fact, Jesus says here, that he's going to return at a time that we don't expect. So rather than wasting our time trying to figure out when he will return, we must focus on being ready. Being ready at all times. The two short parables at the end of chapter 24, the thief there in verse 43 and the wise and wicked servants in verse 45, both warn of the unexpectedness of Jesus' return, his coming before you expect. And the parable we'll look at this morning stresses the need for preparedness in the face of unexpected delay, his coming later than you would expect. So, I invite you to follow along then as I read the parable of the ten virgins, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Information about wedding customs in the ancient world are relatively sparse. And practices would likely have differed from place to place. 
But as best as we know, marriages were normally arranged by the parents, and typically the betrothal, or what we might call the engagement, took place in the bride's parents' house, where her dad would negotiate the price of her dowry. It was a festive and exciting occasion. Well, during this betrothal period, which could last a while, the young woman would have remained in her father's house. But when the wedding day came, after she got all ready, the bridegroom would come with some close friends to the bride's home, and there would be various ceremonies. And then, just after nightfall, there would be a festive procession to the groom's house, or likely the groom's parents' house. And they would be escorted there by an entourage with torches and lanterns. And then after they arrived, the party could begin. And the richer the groom's family was, the longer the party would last. It could go on for several days. Now, the ten virgins in this parable are simply young, unmarried girls who were invited to the celebration. So it's probably helpful, I think, for us to just call them bridesmaids, which is what I'll do here throughout the rest of the message. Though we can't be sure, the bride's never mentioned in this parable. So, so we can just imagine that these ten girls were together somewhere along the route between the house of the groom and the bride's parents, waiting for them to leave for the groom's place so they could join in the procession and enter into the party. The sun sets, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited. There was a delay. I, they must have been having a grand old time in the bride's house. So these ten bridesmaids got tired and they fell asleep. Well, at midnight, the ten bridesmaids woke up to a cry ringing through the streets. Here comes the bridegroom! Here comes the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! They had all brought their lamps which would be needed at the dark of midnight. But only five had brought their oil. Their lamps had a large flat bowl that held oil. And it had a rag or some kind of a wick, like a rope, coming out of it that would need to be trimmed before lighting. While all of them got their lamps ready and lit them, but the flame in the lamps of the foolish bridesmaids immediately went out because the little bit of oil that was remaining in their wick burned up. And they didn't bring any oil. They did what probably all of us would have done in their spot. They turned to the other five and said, Hey, give us some of your oil. The wise bridesmaid said, No. Sorry, not because we don't care or are being selfish. There just isn't enough oil for all of us. So the foolish bridesmaids went out to buy some. When during their trip to the oil vendor, the torch light parade took place. And the groom, along with whoever else 
was with him in the procession, entered into the celebration feast, and the door was shut. Well, after buying oil, the five foolish bridesmaids arrived at the party. But it was too late. They were not allowed to enter and join the celebration. So what does this parable mean? And how does the point Jesus is making to his disciples relate to us? Well, there are certainly easier parables to interpret, but, but I don't think the meaning of this one is hidden or beyond our ability to grasp. Parables are fictitious sayings picturing truth. Or in the words of a modern poet, they're imaginary gardens with real toads in them. So in our effort to interpret parables, it can be easy to get caught up in the details of the imaginary garden and try to find meaning in every single one. And in the process, sometimes, we can miss seeing the real toads. But every single detail should not be pressed. I mean, it's an imaginary garden. So we must always look for the real toads that are hopping around. We must always try to identify the larger point Jesus is making. And I think the main point, the main point Jesus is making in this parable is that we must be prepared for Christ's return. We must be prepared for Christ's return. We see in the context Chapter 24, that's what Jesus is talking about. And then here in verse 1, then, or at that time, when the Son of Man comes. The idea of Messiah as bridegroom is seen in several Old Testament passages. One particular place, Isaiah writes, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And in Hosea, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And as the promised Messiah, Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom. When answering the questions of the Pharisees, and when answering the question of why the Pharisees fast more than his disciples, Jesus said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, came as a baby in Bethlehem. He died on the cross for sin, was raised from the dead by his father, and ascended to his right hand. And as he told his disciples in John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
As one has said so well, Jesus came the first time over 2,000 years ago to die for his bride, to pay a dowry, as it were, with his own blood. And he will come a second time to marry her and take us, his church, into the gardens and chambers of his love and joy forever. Jesus is going to come back. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Everyone will hear the shout, Here is the bridegroom. Even though there's been a delay, he will return at any time. And we must be prepared. We must be alert. We must be watching. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, in this particular parable, it's the response of faith which will enable one to enter the kingdom at the time of the bridegroom's unexpected arrival. Being unprepared, not watching, not being alert, means not having saving faith in Jesus Christ. The lack of proper preparation is the demonstration of unbelief, which will exclude one from entrance into the kingdom and enjoyment in the kingdom. The wise bridemaids were prepared. They had oil, and they were at the party of the bridegroom. The foolish ones were not prepared. They had no oil, and the bridegroom would not let them in. So in the end, then, the difference between each group was salvation. And it was the possession of personal oil, or genuine faith, that allowed them into the wedding feast. This parable, then, should serve as a warning to the church today. It ought to sober us. And it ought to prompt within us examination in our hearts. For most of this story, the foolish bridemaids were pretty much indistinguishable from the wise bridesmaids. They looked the same. They were all invited to the wedding reception, and they all came expecting to participate. But the foolish ones didn't bring any oil. And that, that was the difference. Not having genuine saving faith is why the bridegroom said, I don't know you. As one preacher added, you professed to know the bridegroom and be a follower of him. You had lamps, you had religion, you had form, but you took no care for what was inside. You carried the lamp, you kept it shiny. Others looked at you and assumed you had life, faith, inner reality. But all you had was an empty lamp. 
So we must recognize that it's possible to be in close contact with Christ, with Christians, even to be a member of a church and yet not have genuine saving faith. Such was the case with Judas, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, yet was not a genuine believer. We see similar teaching from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He said, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So we must not miss the warning here from Jesus that there will be a number of people who may look like Christians, associate with Christians, who may even think they are Christians, who will be shocked to learn when Jesus returns that they do not have genuine saving faith. Now the point of this warning, as well as the many warnings in Hebrews that we'll be considering in the coming weeks, the point is not to create uncertainty and doubts in the hearts of genuine Christians or to somehow rob them of their assurance. No, that's not the point at all. Rather, it's to warn those who have a false assurance, but not salvation. Well, how can you know if you're prepared to meet the bridegroom when he comes? How can you be sure that he knows you and will let you into the wedding feast? Well, Scripture teaches that being a child of God or having oil begins with turning from your sin in repentance and placing your faith or trust in the sacrificial death for sin of Jesus on the cross in your place. There, on the cross, he received the wrath of God for sin that we deserve so that we might be granted forgiveness and eternal life. And when you repent and believe, the Bible says that you're reborn or given a new heart and a new life that is being transformed more and more to the image of Christ. God continues this good work, and he will never, ever stop until we're glorified. Some of the fruit or evidence of saving faith Scripture describes is a conviction of sin, a hunger for God's word, 
obedience of his commands, and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are just some of the major vital signs that we need to regularly be checking so that we can have confidence that the bridegroom knows us and that we're ready for his return. And so, to all who profess faith in Christ this morning, I encourage you to heed this warning and examine yourself to see if you truly do have oil, if you do indeed possess saving faith. And I think there's an important word of application here that may be particularly relevant to those who grow up in a Christian home. It's somewhat surprising and perhaps even disappointing. I know when I read this, I was like, huh, what? It's just, it strikes us a little bit odd that the five wise bridesmaids didn't share any of their oil. Well, the point there isn't to teach that it's somehow okay to be selfish. Rather, the point is that it's impossible to borrow faith. So children, all of you who are children, look at me right now. Okay, eyeballs up here. Okay, children. Okay, I think I see most of you guys. All right, in light of what Jesus is saying here, it's important to recognize that you can't get to heaven with the faith of your mom and dad. No matter how strong of a Christian they may be, they can't give you their faith. It can neither be transferred nor can it be shared. You are accountable to God for your own individual choices. You must have your own oil. You must respond to the bridegroom's invitation with your own personal repentance and faith. Now, I suspect that some of you are here this morning and know that you're not prepared for Christ's return. Perhaps you don't really believe that he'll come at all. Or maybe you just think that you have plenty of time to get ready before he returns. Yeah, he'll probably come back someday and I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it eventually. Well, as sure as Jesus came the first time, he is going to come again. And even though his return has been delayed, he could come at any time. And you must be ready. You must be ready because it will be too late after he comes. This parable makes it very clear that there's a point of no return after which your rejection of Christ cannot be reversed. The point of no return for you may be death, which no one's ever escaped, and it could come at any moment when you least expect it.
and your point of no return maybe when the bridegroom comes, which could happen any second now when you least expect it. And at either time, the door will close and it will be too late to get ready. So, this delay, this current delay is God's mercy to you. He is granting you time to respond to his invitation to the bridegroom's eternal wedding feast. And I just urge you then, get your oil now before it's too late. Turn from your sin and embrace Christ through faith today. If you have questions about that, if you'd like to just talk more about what that means to repent and believe and to be ready, I just would encourage you to talk with somebody before you leave. Maybe it's someone you're with or sitting around you. It can be someone at the door. I'll be there. But, but just do talk with us if you have an interest in learning more about how you can be ready when the bridegroom comes. So we've seen then that the primary way in which we must be watchful and alert and ready for Christ's return, so the starting point, the foundation, is to live lives of genuine faith in Christ. The number one first priority way we are prepared is to have genuine faith in Christ. But, but for those of us who have our flasks of oil, what might this look like? What does it look like as a genuine Christian to be prepared, to be watchful, to be ready for the return of Christ? Watchful preparation does not mean going up on a mountain and gazing idly into the sky as we wait for Jesus. Jesus said the bridesmaids were sleeping, which in no way was a bad thing. I think it can simply illustrate the ordinary activities of life. So as we carry on in the day today of this delay, how do we live lives that are prepared for Christ's return? Well, the next parable in this chapter, the parable of the talents, indicates that watchfulness means actively using the talents and gifts that God has given. It's not just slipping in and out of church on Sunday morning, but actively serving in whatever ways you can. And the next parable, the parable of the sheeps and the goats that follows, shows that readiness for Christ's return is actively showing love and mercy to brothers and sisters in need. So, so taking this all together, the kind of the full meat of this chapter, rather than devoting time, energy, and resources to self-preservation, like most preppers today, those preparing for the return of Christ will give themselves away 
in self-sacrificial service for the spiritual and physical good of others. Beyond what we see here in this chapter, watchfulness also means that we will point those without any oil to the bridegroom and will share the good news that they're invited to the feast. Watchful waiting means that we will be engaged in evangelism, declaring the gospel, declaring the truth of the gospel and the need to repent and believe. Our Bible conference this year, September 19th and 20th, our speaker, Randy Newman, is going to talk about this very point. He's going to speak to us on evangelism. I'm really looking forward to it. And, and I just mentioned that as an early preview of what to expect, but be planning on coming. And we'll be encouraged on this very point, Lord willing, at our coming Bible conference. Being ready for Christ's returns that will be, means that we'll be engaged in the life of Christ. We'll be engaged in the life of Christ's bride, which is the church. As we're ready and waiting and being alert, we'll not neglect to meet together. Particularly, the author of Hebrews says, as we see the day of Christ drawing near. And as we recognize the significance of meeting together, we'll see the importance of participating together in the Lord's Supper as Christ commands. This ordinance is a memorial meal commemorating Christ's broken body and shed blood for sin. It's a visual aid to help us remember the costly price that he paid to purchase our seat at the table of the wedding feast. And so in the pointing back to the price he paid to purchase our ticket, there's also a pointing forward as we experience a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. As one noted, the Lord's Supper is an appetizer for the feast that will commence on the day when Christ reunites heaven and earth. Consider God's promises in Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the repro reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That is what awaits all who are in Christ. Death will be devoured, gone forever. Tears and shame will be forgotten 
forever. And there will be a feast. A feast of the best. A feast for people from all nations, tribes, peoples, and language. A feast forever. Will you be there? Will you be there? The bridegroom himself has invited you to share in his feast. And he'll be coming back at any time. Are you ready to meet him? Do you have your oil? Are you alert? Are you ready? Are you watching? Dear Father, what matters most of all is not ultimately that we know you, but that you know us. For if you had not known us, we could never know you. So thank you, Father. Thank you for your electing love in Christ. And thank you for drawing us to yourself through your Spirit. And Father, for those who are here this morning who don't know you, who are not yet part of your family, Father, please, we pray, grant them the gift of repentance and the gift of faith. And Father, may we be ready for the return of Christ. May we desire and long for it. May we be prepared and alert, living lives of faithful service to you and one another as we wait. And now, Lord, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, may it direct us to Christ and may it help us to, meet, to remain watchful as we wait for his imminent return. It's in his name we pray. Amen.